0: Hi, everybody. This is Tony Kahn, the producer and director of Morning Stories from WGBH in Boston. And welcome to the last of our half-hour radio show versions of Morning Stories. Now, on our next podcast, the one after this one, we'll be back with brand-new stories from WGBH's brand-new home, where we've been working for the last couple of weeks very hard to unpack our boxes, to hang new plants, and especially to make sure that all this new equipment, We'll keep on bringing you the same old Morning Story sound. We're also keeping the same old email address, morningstories at wgbh.org. In case you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you and tell us what's been uh, moving in your lives. That's morningstories at wgbh.org. So here are four tales from Boston, Brooklyn, Manhattan, and small town North Carolina. On lessons that people have learned from that oldest school in the world, their streets. We call it from the street.
1: I come from uh, the East New York section of Brooklyn. One of my most vivid memories of growing up there is the smell of smoke, um, fires everywhere. Yeah. You know.
0: Martinez Bada grew up in an urban ghetto in the 1960s. He became a college professor and a world-class poet. During a recent publicity tour for his latest book of poems, he told me about daily life in his old neighborhood and about a moment that helped him find his way out.
1: One day I got into a disagreement in the street in front of my building, not an unusual occurrence, and uh, the kid uh, picked up a can and uh, struck me on the head, and uh, you know how head wounds are. Blood, or oh, you know, my hands, and my shirt, and my face, and my shoes. My father was gone, and when I got up to um, the floor uh, where I lived, I started banging on every door in the hallway. These were my neighbors. These were people I knew, or thought I knew. You know, looking through that peephole that they have in those doors, and seeing this kid screaming for help and bleeding, uh, and pounding on the door, and Um, none of the doors opened. (laughs) I felt like a victim, losing a fight in the street. It's a shame. You know, if you were dumb enough to duck and still get hit by that can, it's your own damn fault. Yeah, you're just stupid. Next time you won't turn your back. Next time you won't trust that person, whatever. You know, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that was a very long time ago. Uh, but that's how I remember it. From behind each door, televisions blaring away. The sound, you know, the uh, Vietnam War. What's the hardest part of it? Not knowing where they are, that's the worst. One. You lost any friends? Quite a few, we lost one the other day. When I went back to those projects many years later... I walked down the same hallway, and I listened, and damn it, it was the Iraq War. According <sighs> to the count killed There's still a war on television. in March, and more than thousand in January. The cycle of violence continuing this month as I can remember something that happened in those uh, same projects. I, I, I was, couldn't have been more than seven or eight years old there was a sound of screaming. We looked out the window, we could see a large man beating a small man in the street. And uh, my father just walked out the door and went down into the street to stop that fight. I was in the apartment looking out the window. My mother called the police, and of course the police didn't show up. Of the thousands of people who either saw or heard that screaming, he was the only one who stepped forward where that courage comes from. I don't know. That doing the right thing is paramount. That if you don't do the right thing, you are not the person you say you are. And I think he did it not only because he wanted to stop a a, a killing from taking place, but because he knew I was watching. Our kids are watching.
2: me back to my days on the west side of Chicago Hmm. when I was a school bus driver.
0: Assistant producer for Morning Stories, Gary
2: Mott. We pulled up to a stoplight, and on the corner, there's probably 50, 75 people. A group of men start beating on this young girl. Hmm. She was on the ground. They were kicking her. And I looked around, and nobody was doing anything. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, these people are afraid that if somebody steps in, something's going to happen to them or
0: their family. I'll never forget the day that my own mother happened to be in the hospital because her her own father had just had a stroke, and we were all very worried. And all of a sudden, this woman starts shrieking, stumbling down the hall. Nobody knows her or what happened. And my mother walked in front of this woman who was coming right at her and embraced her. The woman hugged her back and just wept turns out that she had lost her husband because of some catastrophic thing that had happened to him in the hospital. My mother didn't know her. All she knew was the right thing to do was to comfort somebody. I never forgot. And so it goes. One story
3: leads to another. Going to school was going to be uh, being a big kid at last, you know, and then I'd walk with Meg and Jerry and Marshall Jr. and Louise, and we'd all go to school,
0: and I wouldn't be the little kid left behind. Betsy Bunn grew up in the South. A teacher in a local writing class introduced us to Betsy, who'd been having a hard time putting the story of her first day at school to paper. So I asked her if she'd like to come into Morning Stories and try telling that story face to face.
3: Marshall Jr. was a year older than my brother, and Louise was a year older than me. And we, we were best friends. We lived on a college campus. We were allowed to go to these big bonfires twice a year at the college. And uh, afterwards, we could sleep over at each other's houses. We played cowboys and Indians. Louise and I always had to be the squaws. Mama had helped me put out my clothes the night before, so I got into my little blue checkered dress. I remember this day as if it's carved in my head. She said, now, Missy, you look just fine, and now Daddy will walk you to school. So I handed Daddy my hand. My Daddy had big, long legs, and I didn't want to run because that wouldn't look like I was a big kid. So I skipped because that looked okay. That looked like I was having a good time. So we skipped school, and he took me in and introduced me to my teacher. Her name was Miss Wilcox, and she smelled like roses. And uh, I had my own desk, and I, was, I looked around the room, and I knew about half the kids because they either went to our church or their parents worked on the faculty. So I could hardly wait for recess. Ms. Wilcox came and she told us that we would play with half the 1st and 2nd and 3rd grades for 20 minutes. So I started to walk around to look for Marshall and Louise, but I couldn't find them. So 20 minutes went and I went back into class. Then lunch came and I thought, okay, I can find Marshall and Louise now. I walked all around the playground, it was really hot. The sun just blistered down from the sky, and came up from the concrete, too. I remember just feeling squished. I saw a couple of the church kids, but I couldn't find Marshall and Louise. So the bell rang, and I went back in. Um, And then it was 2.30, and my sister was there to walk me home, because she was 12. And then we got almost home. And I said, Meg, I didn't see Marshall, Jr., and Louise. Can we stop at their house? She said, No, I don't think so. Besides, I have to go to the bathroom. Come on, let's race. And I got in the kitchen, and Mama was there, and there was lemonade, this pink bubbly pitcher. And Mama said, well, well, here's my big girls. Tell me all about your day. I said, oh, Mama, it was fun, and I'm the best speller in the class. But Mama, I never found Marshall Jr. and Louise. Can we call them to come over now? And the kitchen just got real, real quiet. And Meg said, Mama, she doesn't know. We didn't tell her. And this little baby girl in me just screamed. Didn't tell me, what? I'm not a baby. Tell me, what is it? And then Mama said, Baby, white children and colored children don't ever go to school together. Marshall, Jenny, and Louise will never be in school with you. And I remember I was just stunned Meg, and start started to cry. And Meg, who didn't always try to comfort me, did then. She said, oh, baby, it's all right. They go to another school, and they don't mind. They have other friends, and you'll have other friends, too. You don't need them anymore. You just wait. You'll see. It's okay. And I just remember running out, and I went into my closet that was dark and little and curled up in a little ball. It's not okay. It was not okay. I feel stunned all over again just talking about it, even all these years and years and years later. I remember, Tony, when I had young children myself, and it was when all the whites were boycotting the schools and setting up private schools in the South. My sister had older children, school-aged children and she said she said my children will walk the line picket line i said meg they could miss years of school i wasn't at all sure that i would have the belief that it would take to have my children miss two or three years of school while they walked a picket line i didn't like myself very much You know, I I did hospice work for many years, and one woman I cared for, I left on a Friday afternoon, and I said, Bye, Mrs. B., I'll see you Monday. She took my hands in hers and said, Stay well, my dear, be clear, and do the best you can. Sometimes the best you can do is not enough. If there is anything that is primarily important in the world it's the ability and willingness to be part of each other's lives. I don't think we try very hard. I wonder if we ever will.
0: Betsy Bunn, Marshall Jr., and Louise. I got a question I want to ask you, Garrett. What would you say was the most important thing that you learned in school? And did it have anything to do with the curriculum?
2: No, I'd have to say that most of what I remember, lessons I learned, were learned on the schoolyard. Mm -hmm. I learned in fourth grade, not to play chess in math class (laughs) because i got busted one time for that developing relationships with friends with girls Mm -hmm. i mean all that happened in the context of school you're out there on your own trying to decide is what i'm hearing is this what i believe is this what i should believe
4: We live right next to the schoolyard, lots of swearing, lots of kids fighting. Hitesh Hati was born in Uganda
0: to an upper caste refugee family from India. When he was a teenager, he was transplanted to a blue collar community in upstate New York. From there, he went to Harvard. He married a white American woman, and they're now raising a family in a working-class Irish-Italian neighborhood near Boston. Every once in a while, we like to ask Hitesh to come into Morning Stories and tell us how his life and his story have been changing.
4: In the last uh, year and a half, my wife and I... This interracial couple. We had a child. Neighbors who clearly were not very happy <laughs> that we were there in the neighborhood and hadn't spoken to us in four or five years really, had barely nodded to us. All of a sudden were stopping their car when they saw me outside and saying, how's the baby? How's the mother? You know, what does he weigh? And, and it's been like that since then. So it was a, it was a passport, I guess, of membership on my street and I remember we live right next to the schoolyard to which most of the people in the neighborhood have gone for two generations or three and you know the schoolyard is now a kind of difficult place to lots of swearing lots of kids fighting some of the kids in the schoolyard had always been uh, somewhat iffy about me and my wife I was a foreigner and they were often unpleasant lots of things shouted at us and then I talked to one of the mothers of these teenagers and she said, Dan, let's call him, Dan looks at you and the other day he asked me, he said, Mom, is that, is he one of the guys I might have to fight if I have to go over to Afghanistan and Iraq? Here's a 16-year-old boy, sweet guy, facing a different world, a world in which I have interposed myself I represent the end of his childhood in this small... Catholic, working-class Irish and Italian world that he knew. I also represent dangers in the world. I think about, oh, my child, um... You notice in that schoolyard that the kids all more or less speak in the same accent, use the same words, and wear the same clothes. The schoolyard is making them into one thing, and that thing is American. Um... It just so happens that America is this remarkable place where part of that one thing includes some profound difference, too. You know, Fatima's mother more or less covers her entire body and wears a scarf on her head, just as Danny Reagan's mother is different and wears lipstick. And I suspect that my child, our child, will be rather like them, that he will have parents who don't eat hot dogs and cook all these odd foods and he probably, poor kid, would have been forced to learn three different words in three different languages for everything Uh, but that'll be an expression of his (laughs) Americanness.
2: Hot tea. How can you live in the Boston area and not eat hot dogs? <laughs> yeah, what, what a fascinating guy. And of course, now he's a father, uh, no small change. When I hugged him hello,
0: he burped me. <laughs> 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 the guy needed a nap. <laughs> we have an email here from uh, someone named Todd who says I just wanted to say that Morning Stories is heard with eagerness and enthusiasm here in Bangkok through a delightful alleyway. Every once in a while, we ask people to tell us where they're taking morning stories and why. And the emails have been, well, delightful. The streets are busy with shopkeepers opening up for the day's business, the barber playing checkers with bottle caps, the fried banana lady who wants to make me fat by eating those delicious batter-fried bananas, And the English newspaper sales guy that hands me the paper before I can reach in my pocket for the change to pay him. The street is awash with the color of daily flower offerings to the Buddha and the smell of incense burning. Bangkok is wonderful in the morning, and Morning Stories, for me, is a part of it. Well, thanks very much for taking us along with you, Todd.
2: Tony, I've got one from a bit closer to home. Mm -hmm. I'm a postal carrier in western Maryland and I've been the substitute on the same route since 1999. Morning stories end up on my iPod, delivering RR08 every Saturday. That's RR08, yes. Right. I burn a copy for the sub that works RR09, the opposite <laughs> end of town. I have both mansions and condemned houses. He has schools
0: and jails. That's from BJK. Oh, boy, what a picture of a town, huh? Mansions and condemned houses on one side, schools and prisons on the other. When we have the chance, we like to give our correspondents a call and keep the conversation going. A few days back, I had a conversation with a lovely woman named Aurea in southern Brazil, who uses Morning Stories to help her students learn English.
5: Hello.
0: Hello, is Aurea there?
5: Yes,
0: it's Aurea. Aurea, it's Tony calling from Boston. Oh,
5: how are you?
0: Oh, I'm delighted to hear your voice at last. How are you? <laughs> Aurea, is it Julio? Julio. Julio.
5: It's much more difficult than you thought.
0: It's much more musical. Listen.
5: Oh, Jesus.
0: Oh, my God, what Could happened?
5: Did you hear that, Tony? we're having a huge thunderstorm, the hottest season in the last 30 years. Oh, it was an awful thunder. Are you okay? Yes, I am.
0: But you're afraid of thunder.
5: Not really, but this one was amazing. Very scary. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Can you hear? Oh, you poor dear. Can you hear that? (laughs) I'm sorry. I can hear it. Oh, Jesus.
0: Oh. Uh, are you? Uh oh. Oh, oh! I'm here. Oh Christ! Oh my God!
5: This is going to kill someone.
0: I'm getting scared now. <laughs> yeah, yes, for you. My boy,
5: is, uh, my boy is coming back from work. I hope he's okay.
0: Oh, I hope so too. I would yeah, we'd ask people how they. We're using morning stories in their lives When you told us about using them for helping people learn how to speak English better is that right?
5: Yes, yes. How does that work? I record your programs and then I I use them for the listening activities uh, and for the speaking real stories real people stories make the students feel more connected to real world they feel emotional mm. and and they always have a similar story to to tell the others people are the same all over I think so these stories are uh, heartwarming as as you say I can remember um, three stories really touched my my students it brought them memories of similar situations they they have faced in their life the so- one about the the kids who were adopted
0: by... A- mentioned a number of morning stories that had touched her students, and one in particular from a man in Manhattan that had touched her.
5: This guy who decided to walk all the streets in Manhattan... Right. This was beautiful. I found it so amazing that I wanted to do the same thing, I went know? to
0: his website, newyorkcitywalk.com, wonder- and read about his mission to walk every street in New York... If he was ever in Boston, I said, "Please drop in. Tell us how it went."
6: All these different transitions from one neighborhood to the next. Here's a building that was built last year next to a building that's 150 years old, and thousands and thousands of people over the years who have walked up those steps. It was a very old bowling green in, the, in lower Manhattan. And there's a fence around it that's 250 years old. It used to have these crowns that, that uh, represented the king on top. And after hearing the Declaration of Independence in July 1776, some zealous citizens sawed off the crowns off of the top of the fence. And you can go there today and feel the top of the fence the saw marks are still there still there i grew up in albuquerque and i would take really long walks spreading out slowly from the park that was that was in my local neighborhood trying to learn where i lived i remember mom pulling off the side of the road to find a 50-foot strip of original blacktop from the old Route 66, you know, that the Grapes of Wrath trucks would have crossed. My father would go to, um, I had to visit battlefields, and, and it didn't really matter if the battlefield had been turned into a Walmart parking lot or something like that. He would just, his imagination would just take over, and he'd get this faraway look in his eyes, and he'd say, you know, you can just picture the Confederate Army coming over the hill over there, you know, or something like that. I get that same far-off look in my eyes. It makes your life connected with all those people and with all those events in history that 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 human drama my grandfather's from brooklyn and worked in the city and um uh when he was uh 14 he was he was robbed of a lot of money he was a messenger boy he was delivering over a thousand dollars. And it was it was written up in the in all the newspapers, what he did that morning, where he withdrew the money, where he was robbed. Almost all the buildings are, are gone. But there's there's one building that's left. It's the police station on Elizabeth Street, where they took him. A sergeant walked in and said, Oh, you know, do you wanna see the back and and uh there was the office, and I'm sure it's where my grandfather sat. I'm sure that's where he was sitting that morning talking to the detective the the cops thought he stole the money. they smacked him in the in the face and he had bruises on his face and uh, he was just a a scared kid, you know and Never made it past the eighth grade, and um, to, to be in that spot just for a few minutes.
7: Through the ozone haze, the Empire
6: State I'm very glad I did this
7: Glistening rose, and the river is glimmering softly wherever it goes.
6: From all over the island, if you look up, you can see the Empire State Building. And you can see, if you look up on the observation deck, these little pops of light. The tourists are up there taking flashes.
7: Manhattan is a myth, rising in the mist. Make a wish and then it's
6: gone. I, I love that. From all over the island, I've wherever I was, it was like this little beacon I'd see up there and I'd see those flashes. So the, so the last street was... 33rd between Broadway and 5th. There was a group of my friends on the corner waiting for me, and they cheered, and Koreatown is right there, and we we stopped and had some toast, and then I went up alone to the top of the Empire State Building and took pictures, took flashes, and sent out my own flashes down to Manhattan. So, and that's how it ended. Couldn't wait to get back down and walk around some more down
7: there. One foot in front of the
6: other that clears your mind.
7: Never before has it been more beautiful, that's the thing. Manhattan is a myth, rising in the mist. Make a wish and then it's good.
0: Caleb Smith, with a wonderful musical assist from two of the four lascivious biddies, the darlings of podcasting. You can get them at bittiesforever.com. That's for the number, bittiesforever.com. Thanks also to magnitude.com for providing the music for this broadcast. We've got a web presence as well at wgbh.org slash morningstories. Spend some time with stories. They'll do you some good. Morning Stories is a production of WGBH Boston. Assistant producer for Morning Stories is Gary Mott. The producer of this broadcast is Melina Spitzer. I'm Tony Khan. Join us next time for more stories from your neighbors around the world.
7: It doesn't look so big Caught without a wig When they stepped on her shore That a city would grow from a steeple And from that one city a world With ocean views, kills and mews The children play And the river is glimmering softly Manhattan is a myth Rising in the mist Make a wish and then it's good.